Hey, how are you guys this morning? Good. Glad you're here with us. You should have got a note sheet when you came in. We are starting a brand new book of the Bible today, the book of Philippians. I'm excited to be in it. Um, Typically, this is what we do. We were in Hebrews before this and Daniel before that. Um, But for the summer, we kind of took a break from that and did a a series where we studied about the the teachings of Jesus and the Gospels. But man, I'm really, really happy to be in this book. So we're going to be in this book for the next four weeks, and we'll have a vision service, and then we'll be in the Gospel of John um, from now until when Jesus comes back, because that's a really long book. So um, (laughs) anyway, hey, glad you're with us this morning. Um, I I really want to jump right in because um, we got a lot of ground to cover today. And uh, so if you got your Bibles, go ahead and and turn to uh, Philippians 1. Um, before we can really get into the text, we've got to get a little bit of background. We talk about what is the book of Philippians, who were these people, what kind of a book of the Bible is it? Well, um, Philippians were the people that lived in a place called Philippi. They were people that were part of the Philippian church. It was a real city and a real place. These are real people. Historically, this is a Greek city. And this is named after Philip II of Macedon. This would have been um, the father of Alexander the Great. If you remember reading about him in history class, um, his dad would have established the city, named it after himself. And located in the northern part of what is modern Greece, it's near the coast of the Asian Sea. We'll see a map here in just a second. In the New Testament times, um, Philippi would have been a Roman colony. So the residents in Philippi would have had Roman citizenship, and this is significant because this was different than what um, a lot of early churches were. A lot of early churches would have been from Jewish people that were familiar with kind of a a monotheistic understanding of the faith, and monotheism means belief in one God. Um, These guys would have probably had uh, grown up in homes that worshipped different gods, the God of the sea, the God of grain, the God of fire. And so when Paul, and as we'll see in a second, comes preaching one God, one path, Jesus is the only way, it would have been a little bit different. This was a um, fairly large industrial center. Gold mining was kind of what they were known for. And again, it was home to a lot of pagan religious influence. This is a map kind of showing us where Philippi would have been. You can see on the left there was Rome. And we'll talk about here in a second, the author of this letter would have been under house arrest when he wrote this letter to them. And then down near the uh, lower right-hand corner of the screen, we see Jerusalem. That was the early church headquarters, and this is where uh, all of that started. And so Paul would have established this church somewhere around 52 AD. He took a a journey with um, a guy named Silas and a guy named Timothy, and they would have gone to this area of Asia Minor and established uh, this church. And we see in Acts chapter 16 a little bit of a backstory about who these people were. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, they're traveling, they're preaching the gospel, they're going to different towns, they're they're seeing who comes to faith in Christ, they're establishing churches in these towns. And what we see is that Philippi is a little bit different. Philippi is an extremely diverse church with people from all walks of life. One of the first converts that we see in Acts 16 is a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia is a very affluent businesswoman who worked in the fashion industry. The Bible says that she made purple dyes, and most likely that would have been for people's clothing or maybe from tapestries or or, or different fabrics. And so Lydia is kind of at a city uh, square, and Paul and Silas and Timothy strike up a conversation with her, begin to talk to her about God and talk to her about her faith. And what we see in Acts 16, verses 14 and 15, that Lydia comes to faith in Christ and is baptized. And so the very first convert to the church in Philippi is someone that was very successful and very affluent. Now what's interesting is that the rest of the people that are recorded in Acts 16 that come to faith in Christ in Philippi look absolutely nothing like Lydia. 
In fact, a few verses later, we see that there is a pagan, demon-possessed slave girl whose masters are making an income off of her because she has a demon that enables her to tell people's fortunes. She can tell people what's going to happen in their lives and kind of read their mail because there's a demon that living inside of her. And, and so as Paul, Silas, and Timothy are walking amongst the streets in, in Philippi and preaching the gospel, this girl keeps following them, and, and this girl is mocking them because there's a demon living inside of her. And finally, we get just this picture of Paul getting fed up and saying, hey, in the name of Jesus, come out. And so this woman is delivered which is awesome for her, and we have indication to believe that she joined the church and was part of it, but um, not so great for the people that owned her because that was their source of income. And so these guys got mad at Paul and Silas and had them thrown in prison. But Paul and Silas' ministry does not stop when they get in prison. If you know the story, these dudes are in chains in prison, and at the midnight hour when it was dark, and they've been beaten earlier that day. These guys start singing praise to God, and God sends an earthquake and breaks the chains off of them. An amazing story in the book of Acts. And all the different prisoners are rushing out, and the correctional officer that was in charge of making sure no one escaped saw that the prisoners were getting out, and he almost kills himself. He takes out his sword, and he's about to run it through himself because in those days it was life for life. If you let somebody else escape, then you would be executed. But Paul and Silas say, no, 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 don't do that. And Paul and Silas call the other prisoners back in and they're able to share the gospel with the Philippian jailer and they're able to see him and his entire family come to faith in Christ. So, so let's just think about this. In one church, you got somebody that works in the fashion industry that is extremely wealthy, that is extremely cosmopolitan, that, that knows a lot about kind of the ways of the world and kind of upper class. You've got somebody that used to be demon possessed and that was a slave. That's in your church. And then you've got somebody that was a correctional officer in a jail. And all of these people are gathered together in one place. And you would ask, what do these people have in common? The answer is absolutely nothing. Except for the, the, the fact that God radically delivered each and every one of them. And they're partakers of grace. And we'll see that here in a second when Paul writes to them. So this is what Paul's doing. He's writing a letter to these guys. Paul writes this letter to these guys while he was in prison in Rome. And depending on which historian or theologian you read, some people think it was a jail cell. Other people think it was house arrest. It was most likely house arrest. And he thanks the Philippian church for their financial support. He thanks the Philippian church for their prayer for him. And he also encourages them in the midst of some very real issues they're facing. Let's think about it. They're a Christian church in an area that has always been pagan. And so these dudes coming to faith in Christ probably was shocking to their parents and to their friends and the people they worked with and said, what do you mean you're not going to go to this festival that celebrates the Greek God of wine? We've always done that. What, what are you talking about? And, and so Paul is telling them, hey, in the midst of that, I want you to stay strong. And he mentions a guy named Ephroditus. We'll see him here in chapter two, but Ephroditus was most likely the pastor of the church in Philippi, that Paul would have discipled him and appointed him as the leader of this church and Paul alludes to Ephroditus, and we, we, we kind of speculate that maybe Ephroditus traveled to Rome and visited Paul and gave him some sort of a financial gift that the Philippian church had raised. And so this is the picture that we see of this church and why this letter was written. It was written about 10 years after Paul would have traveled to Philippi on his missionary journey, about 62 AD. This is a letter to a very diverse church. We saw three snapshots in Acts 16 of three different stories that represented the people in Philippi that were believers. It was a young church. It was a very healthy, growing church 
A lot of letters that Paul writes to churches he established, he's telling them, hey, you guys, I, I founded the church, it was going great, and then I left and all this stuff started happening, you started believing false doctrine. Um, and so he kind of corrects a lot of the churches, like the church in Galatia, or the church in Corinth. But in Philippi, that's not the case. Mainly, what we see from Paul is encouragement. It takes a very conversational, informal tone, as if it's written to friends, and it's mostly an encouragement to continue pursuing a life of Christ, even in the midst of very challenging circumstances, such as persecution or marginalization. In chapter one, where we'll be in this morning, what we see is that Paul greets the Philippian church. We get a snapshot of kind of their relationship and that close-knit, intimate relationship they have. Paul assures them that his sufferings, being under house arrest, are actually a part of God's plan to spread the gospel and to exalt the Lord. What Paul would say to us and anybody that reads this section of scripture is that you and I can only have joy, this thing that Paul alludes to and talks about through this whole letter, in times of trouble, when we adopt an eternal perspective in the midst of our circumstances. There are a lot of us in this church that are walking through some very tough times right now. I've had conversations with people over the weeks, and um, sometimes I, I even lack words to even uh, describe what that feels like for some of you guys, um, and, and my heart breaks for you. And right here, right now, in this room this morning, I, I know that I know that I know the answer to whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, is Christ. That's not a VBS, silly, little flannel graph Jesus answer. That is the true reality of a strong foundation grounded in the work of the living Christ that can give you everything you need and what you're facing to be able to have joy, even when it looks like the world is burning around you. And so right now, I feel like that's what God wants to do in the room this morning through his word. So we're going to pray together, and we're going to dive right in and see what God wants to do. Everybody doing okay this morning? Are you sure? Okay. Good, just have to check on you. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. God, there are a lot of people here this morning that, that may be walking through a season of, of suffering and adversity and tribulation, and, and they have no idea what you're doing in the midst of it. Lord, for those of us that are walking through that, I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, you will be closer to us in this season than you've ever been. I pray, Father, that you would bind up the brokenhearted, that you will heal those that are wounded this morning through your word. And I ask, God, that you would give us what we need to be able to place our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus completely each and every day. Lord, keep your hand on me this morning as I deliver your word. God, I pray for every other church in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, this morning as they're gathering and they're teaching your word and they're, they're worshiping together. Lord, I pray, Father, that you would cause them to grow, that you would cause them to be strengthened. And I pray that your church would be united together as one solid unified front for your glory, for your kingdom, not for ours. We love you and we thank you and we ask for you to keep your hand on us as we study your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Philippians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, 
that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for you, for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn with you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. For it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. So the opening identifies Paul and Timothy as servants of Jesus Christ, and, and yet we know that only Paul was the author. So what that leads us to believe is that Timothy may have been present during Paul's house arrest, and so as Paul's writing, he's saying, yeah, Timothy says, hey, as well. And he also says this letter is addressed to all the saints who are those in Christ Jesus, and it's crazy that Paul wants to include this aspect of his identity before anything else. He didn't say, hey, this is Paul, the guy that founded the Christian movement in Asia Minor. No, no, he says all the saints, servants of Jesus Christ, he addresses the leaders in the church, but what we see is that the gospel is the great equalizer. That Paul is going to say, we're all partakers in grace. This isn't about me trying to prove I'm better than you. In chapter 2, we'll see humility presented and what the character of Christ and the mind of Christ looks like. But yes, structures of authority do exist within the church, yet all of us are to be humbly submitted to the authority of Christ. And that Paul comes right out of the gate talking about, it's not about me, it's about us being partakers of grace and being servants of Christ. And Paul had developed a very particular fondness and love for this church. You don't see him writing to other churches quite like he writes to Philippi. And he preached and he baptized these guys into the faith. I mean, if you think about in Acts 16, the things he would have seen, he saw a demon come out of one girl and he saw a guy on the brink of suicide be rescued and delivered. And so there's a fondness there as he's seen them grow in their faith over the years. And over the years, they had supported his ministry financially and with prayer. And so he tells them, guys, we're all in this together. We are partners in the work of the gospel that there are things that Paul can do and places that Paul can go that these guys in Philippi cannot go. And so these guys in Philippi, in being partners of the gospel, are praying for Paul and they're giving to the work of the mission of Paul. And so what we see in the New Testament, even from this first little chunk in the book of Philippians, is that to truly be the church, active participation is required from everyone. We've created a culture somehow in the States where church is you guys coming in once a week and the professionals kind of do all the heavy lifting and all the work and then everybody leaves and goes gets Bojangles chicken and then comes back a week later and we do it all over again and that's church. That's not what we see in the New Testament. We see in the New Testament that they're walking arm in arm in lockstep. Everybody's saying, hey, if you're not doing your part, I can't do my part. They're like even now in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, like there are conversations that you can have that I don't get to have. You know how weird it is when somebody finds out what I do for a living? Oh, you're a pastor. Oh, <laughs> right? But man, in your workplace, there are conversations and relationships that you can foster and that you can grow and avenues for you to be able to share the gospel in that I will never get to have the opportunity to do that. But you will. And so to do this thing called living for the gospel, living in a manner worthy of the gospel, everybody's got to be walking in step, wanting the same thing, and that is for Christ to be glorified, not ourselves to be glorified. 
So this is what Paul writes to this guy. Hey, we're partners in the gospel. We are all doing something to make Christ known. And he's confident of what God has already done. He's seen God do amazing things in these guys' lives when they first came to faith, but he knows that the God who began that good work in them, who radically saved these guys, will carry it on to completion. The Christian life is not just a one-time incident where we come into faith maybe in a radical way and then we park our butts in a, in a pew or in a seat and then don't really do anything else. No, it's a, it's a process of becoming more like Christ. If you're here in the room this morning and your heart is beating and there's breath in your lungs, there is more room for you to grow. There's always more. There's always closer we can get to Christ and spiritual growth should continue in each one of us until the day we see Christ face to face. And so even though this church is doing great, Paul says, I'm praying for you, I'm praying for your spiritual growth. And his, his love and affection for this church is not lessened by his imprisonment. In fact, he refers to himself when he's under house arrest, when he's under lock and key, when he's under the guard of the Roman Praetorium, he cannot leave he doesn't know if he's going to be executed or die in prison, but yet in the face of that, he says, I am a partaker of grace. Grace means unmerited favor. Grace means I don't deserve it, but it's still being given to me without measure. And he says, even when I'm in this situation, I've been given more from God than I ever could have earned or deserved. And he says, so have you. And this introduces a major theme in the book of Philippians, and that is true joy in Christ True contentment, a life of purpose, a life of meaning, a life with a solid foundation is absolutely never dependent upon your circumstances. And Paul says, man, I know that I know that I know. Even in the face of this imprisonment, I still have everything I need through Christ. And so what you're going through, I know you're going to be okay if you have him too. And we'll see him expound on that and talk more about it as this book goes along. Having expressed his love for these guys, he shares his prayer for them and their pursuit of Christian growth. He, he says that he's praying that love will abound. Love should be the chief characteristic of the Christian. Jesus said to his disciples, people will know that you're my disciples by the way you love others. But Paul doesn't stop there. He says, I'm praying that love will abound, but I'm praying that love will abound with knowledge and with discernment. That love is more than a shallow emotion. We, we live in a day and age where everybody gets to define what love means. And for many of us, it's just kind of a passing feeling that we get. It's butterflies. But, but what Paul is saying is that our love for God and our love for others should mature as we grow closer to Christ and as we follow Christ. And these two characteristics, knowledge and discernment, give us an indication of how they should mature and what that maturity looks like. He talks about discernment in verse 10. That with that discernment, they can approve of those things in their lives that are excellent. And so doing, be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. I, I truly believe that discernment is what we are lacking more than anything in the American church. There was a, a, a Greek philosopher that was pagan, but all truth is God's truth, and he said something very profound. He said, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I meet so many people that live unexamined lives where we blindly accept whatever culture throws at us and then we wonder why our love for God and others is so cold. But discernment is that ability to examine and test every part of our lifestyle. 
As Christians, we don't blindly accept every mindset. We don't blindly accept every behavior. And we don't blindly accept every belief of our culture. Rather, we are called by the word of God to prayerfully examine our lives according to the standards of scripture. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, test all things, examine all things, and hold fast to that which is good. In other words, what we're called to do is every single day look at our life and say, man, there are things in my life that when I do them, I grow in my love for God and I grow in my love for others. And so those are things in my life that I'm going to hold fast to. Those are things in my life I'm going to fill my life with good relationships and good time with the Lord and, and invest in my marriage and invest in the church. And then there are other things in my life that even though the Bible doesn't explicitly forbid them, I know that if I park my butt in front of Netflix for four hours, I'm not going to feel like praying and loving my wife after that. I got really quiet in here real quick. <laughs> it's discernment. Some of you say, well, that's legalism. I don't see that in the Bible. No, no, no. It's love. It's love. It doesn't have to be in the Bible. If I'm in love with Jesus and I know the state of my heart after I spend hours doing something that's investing only in me and not in the people around me and not in my God, and I can pay attention and say, my love for everyone else but myself has grown cold, I'm going to grow in discernment and realize I probably need to do less of that and more of the things that will make me love God more. This is what he calls us to. He says, grow in discernment and grow in knowledge. And the natural byproduct of true Christian fellowship, this partnership in the gospel, of God's grace and God's peace and God's love, is that we are filled with the fruit of righteousness. That what's going on the inside of us is displayed on the outside of us. That our actions mirror what God is doing in our hearts. But that only comes through Christ at work in our lives for his glory. This isn't you doing it to yourself. This isn't a behavioral code that if you follow this, you're somehow square with God. You can't change yourself. You can't fix yourself. It is Christ coming into your life and transforming you. And as he transforms your life, you become more like him. Paul says this is a work of grace that gives glory to God. So this idea of joy, that Paul is going to just harp on over and over and over again through this Book. He, he mentions in this little first part, these first 11 verses, a couple of things about him. The very first thing that he kind of alludes to is that this is not dependent on circumstance. He's going to talk about here in a second of what's happened to him and, and how it's less than ideal for, for those around us. But like what Paul's going to say is, man, it doesn't matter where you're at or what you're going through. If you're committed to following Christ and you're committed to a solid relationship with him, he can give you everything you need no matter what's going on around you. And it's not dependent on your circumstance. Paul says in the very first few verses of this letter that affection and love and partnership, these are so essential to the life of the Christian. That true joy, a true life of purpose and meaning is cultivated and grown in Christian community. That, that we've become such an individualistic, privatized society that sometimes in the church looks more like outside of the church. Are you guys hearing me this morning? Like, when my wife and I moved into our neighborhood, I've told you this before, we were hoping and expecting we'd meet all our neighbors and it'd just be like, you know, I don't know, the show Home Improvement where Wilson's talking to the fence and we just have a great, you know, just this happy community. We were so excited because we were in an apartment complex and so we pulled into our driveway, we first moved in and we were grilling out, you know, meet the neighbors, this is gonna be great. And, 
First neighbor that we saw pulled into their driveway, opened their garage door, went in, shut the garage door, then we never saw him again for like three weeks. The eight-foot privacy fence, right? And like, that's our society. We, we, we are so entranced with our own six-inch version of reality we have right in front of our face all the time that most of the time we aren't paying attention to the people sitting right next door to us. And when this service ends, a lot of us will act like we're leaving a plane. We try not to look at each other, right? I don't know if we steal each other's soul, if we make eye contact, like, ah, get my kids, get my kids, get my kids. Like, we're such a privatized society that, like, we, our, our churches look more like McDonald's than they do houses of worship. We get a McChurch, McWorship, McSermon, get out the drive-thru, get out of here, get in, get out. The parking lot's clogged. We're going to hit that horn. And man, like, we've got to ignore whole passages of Scripture if we want to live this Lone Ranger Christianity. Because the New Testament talks about being invested in and going deep in Christian community. And I wonder how many of us are just being disobedient to that because we're afraid or we're selfish. But Paul says this life of joy has to be cultivated, has to be grown in Christian community. I'm going to get off that before somebody throws a tomato at me. Here we go. He says it's fought for. And it's guarded with discernment and knowledge that we're examining constantly our lives and, and looking at the things that, that build us closer to the Lord and closer to others and things that aren't, and we're guarding against it and we're fighting for it. And then ultimately joy and this life of meaning and purpose and contentment and satisfaction, that's a work of grace. That's God doing that in your heart, and that gives glory to God. So the people that see your lives know that it is God that's doing that in you and you belong to him. Let's go on to this next part. You guys still with me? All right, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that... I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear 
that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul says in verse 12 that what has happened to me? Guys, I want you to know what has happened to me. You may think it's a setback. You may think it's a bad thing. It's not. It's a good thing. God's working in the face of it. Now, we talked about it earlier, but let's really think about what's happening. Paul was not disobedient. Paul was obedient. Paul was doing everything that God asked him to do. Paul was living his life like God asked him to live his life. And even though he was being obedient to everything God told him to do, he was in prison. He was under lock and key. He was what any one of us in this room would say, that is a less than ideal environment. And, and not only is Paul hopeful in the face of that, he didn't seem surprised. He doesn't seem shocked. He, he doesn't seem shaken. But, but a strange aspect of our human condition is that we're surprised when we face adversity. Like we know it could happen theoretically and maybe it probably will, but when it happens to us, some of us get so shell-shocked and we often abandon our values and compromise our character in the heat of it. We were committed to living a life of purpose and following Christ no matter what comes against us and then something comes against us that we weren't prepared for and all of a sudden all that goes out the window and we live lives of fear we live lives that are mainly about surviving, not about truly thriving and being close to Christ and close to the people around us. And, and, and what we see is that it's not the adversity that defines us that we face, but rather it's our reaction to the adversity that we face that defines us. And like all of us will go through storms. I don't care who you are in this room. I don't care how perfect you think your life is at this moment. If you've not gone through a storm, you will go through a storm. And in the midst of that storm, it is not that storm that defines you. You are not a victim of your circumstance, but rather that will reveal where your foundation truly lies. And this is what Paul is saying to these guys, is that I have Christ and I have a life committed to making much of him. And so this is not going to stop no matter where I'm at. And Paul models this to the Philippian church by sharing a Christ-centered response and perspectives to his sufferings. So that word perspective is, is something that's so essential in understanding our faith. If you study architecture, you study art, what you'll know about perspective is perspective is the art of drawing solid objects on a two-dimensional surface so as to give the right impression of their height, width, depth, and position in relation to each other when viewed from a particular point. In other words, when something is drawn with the proper perspective, you can see the whole picture of it. You can see what's really going on in that object. However, with only a limited perspective, you can't truly see the shape of a thing. If all you saw of this building is where you sit right now and the viewpoint and vantage point and perspective of your seat right now in this moment, and that's the only thing you saw about the shape of this building, you probably wouldn't be able to give me a very accurate picture of what this building looks like and what's actually going on with it. And in the same way, sometimes in the face of our suffering, what we see in the moment is not the true picture of what's really going on. We see our sufferings. We're, we're kind of in this little box that is our finite understanding of time and space. And we wonder, God, what are you doing? 
Because all we can see is a limited perspective. And what Paul is calling these guys to do is, man, back up a little bit. Look and see the full picture of this. I know it's hard in the moment. I know you don't understand what's going on in the moment. But God is actually doing something. And of course you can't see it. But he's on the throne. He's still working. He's still on the move. And we praise him for it. So he gives them three things that are happening because of his imprisonment to encourage them. He says, my adversity right now, what I'm going through, this suffering, this imprisonment, this advances the gospel. See, Paul's God-given mission in life was to advance the gospel. This was his marching orders from Jesus himself, that he was supposed to make much of Jesus. He was supposed to preach the gospel and plant churches. And being in prison would not and could not prevent that from happening. Because Paul knew if there's people around, they're going to hear about Jesus. I may not be able to walk free in the streets of Philippi, but man, there's a guard that comes in and checks on me every day, make sure I hadn't escaped. He's a human being. He's made the image of God. Jesus died for him. I'm going to tell him about Jesus. And he did. And so what we see is that because of his imprisonment, his testimony spread to the entire imperial guard. These guys started talking. Man, this dude's like in jail because he won't shut up about this guy, Jesus. Maybe like Jesus means something to this guy. Maybe there's something to this Jesus guy. And not only that, what we see is that his example started inspiring other believers to say, man, if he's not ashamed, I'm not going to be ashamed either. Man, I, 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 I meet so many people that start telling me about their workplace or their family environment and say, man, there are so many people that are man, they're just not open to the faith. Can I just be like, just real for a second? Like, um... I know you can't, when you're supposed to be given a sales presentation, like flip the script and say, we're supposed to be talking about sales numbers. Let's talk about the atonement for a second. God has a wonderful plan for your life. I know you can't do that. <laughs> but I know that you can be intentional about weaving what God has done in your life and your testimony into everyday conversations. You can live differently. And that can cause people around you to, to sit up and take notice and say, what's going on with that guy? And, and some of us are just being disobedient and we're just being cowards. When I was a high school teacher, man, I couldn't openly preach the gospel to my students, but I tell you, every single morning they had a moment of silence for prayer. My kids saw me pray. They come by my desk, they saw my Bible on my desk. When I give them a writing assignment at the beginning of the year where I said, man, you got to write a letter to introduce yourself, and let me go first. My name is Mr. Brooker, and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, and that's a huge part of my life. Now, through the years, like, you may say, well, that didn't do anything. Well, that planted a seed, and through the years I've seen so many students come to know Jesus from being here in this church. And so in your environment, right where you're at, right there, right now, in your workplace, in your family situation, God has given you those people for a reason and for a purpose. And the question is, are you being obedient? And so what we see is that Paul was also a realist. He's a realist. He knew that not everybody that was joining the cause was doing it for the right reasons. He knew that there were some people that were simply hoping to capitalize on, on his imprisonment to replace him as a leader in the church, but, but that wasn't what Paul was focusing on. He says, nevertheless, I am just happy that Jesus is being talked about, that the gospel's being advanced, that Christ is being preached. And some of us have this tendency to only see what's wrong with Christianity, to only see what's wrong with this church or, or posting blog articles of 10 open letter to 10 things in the North American church, and, and that was mean, but um, you understand what I'm saying. We have a culture of critics, and because of social media, every critic now has a platform, and so we think somehow that pointing out a problem is the same as fixing a problem. It's not. 
We're not called simply to criticize. We're called to celebrate wherever Christ is being proclaimed, knowing that God is strong enough to save and touch people in spite of crooked leaders or self-centered leaders with corrupt motives. The gospel's still on the move, and you can't stop it. And so as the church, we've got to get better about celebrating when God's doing something instead of simply being critics. He says this to him. He says, my adversity exalts Christ. Paul maintains his perspective. Paul remains encouraged while he's in prison because he says the spirit of Jesus Christ is remaining at work in me. That, that our encouragement in the midst of adversity does not come from our own willpower. It does not come from our own mental strength. What Paul is saying to these guys is the only reason I can maintain this perspective is constant communion with God. That I am dependent and I'm desperate upon the Spirit of God. You get this picture of if he's in a house arrest in a prison cell. First thing when he wakes up in the morning, he hits his knees. and He says, God, what do you want to do today in me? What do you want to speak today to me? The last thing before he goes to bed is hitting his knees saying, God, I have to have you. I can't do this on my own. And whether he gained his freedom to minister outside of prison or, or whether he went to be with the Lord in heaven, Paul says, I don't want to be ashamed of my testimony for Christ. I want to be faithful with where he's called me. Whatever he's called me to walk down, I, I just want to be faithful. I just want to live for him. And, and that was courage that he needed. Courage, whether it's living for Christ or dying for Christ. Man, sometimes living for Christ is scarier for some of us than dying for Christ. Sometimes living for Christ at like family Thanksgiving is more terrifying to us than being a martyr for Christ. It is. And Paul pens some of the most famous words in all of the Bible when he says, I don't have to be afraid because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And many people believe this gets to the heart of the book. This encapsulates everything he's trying to tell this church in the city of Philippi. That Christ is the source of meaning for Paul. That Christ is the whole reason that Paul is alive. Therefore, in living, while his heart is still beating, when there's breath in his lungs, no matter if he's in prison or he's a free man, he gets the honor each and every day of waking up and getting to exalt Christ and make him known to everyone he's around. And so to live, to truly live, to come alive with purpose and meaning is to make Christ known. To live is Christ, but even if he dies... In death, the adversities and the challenges and the pains and the sufferings of this life are completely over. There's no imprisonment. There's no sickness. There's no sorrow. There's no boredom. There's no weariness. All of that is over, and he gets to be with Christ in heaven. Therefore, the thing that all of us in this room are probably the most afraid of is an upgrade. If we put our hope and our faith in Christ, so to live is Christ. And to die is gain. And he was so committed to this perspective that, that both of his options, less than ideal options, he sees a benefit towards. Because if he stays alive in prison, it means he gets to witness to all the people that come and guard him. It means he gets to write letters and encourage the church. That means he gets to pray for the church. He's probably got a lot of time to pray for people, right? But that's a good thing for him. He sees the perspective in that, that, man, I, I get to have fruitful labor for the gospel, but even if he dies in prison, that means he gets to be with Jesus. And he even says, like, you know, I think I'd rather die and be with Jesus, but I'm going to stay alive for your sake, and that's good too. It's crazy how the, the power of perspective gives him the hope he needs in that, and he's able to find joy in his circumstances because he sees them as opportunities. He doesn't see them as setbacks. 
He sees God so in control of his life that what he's been assigned in that particular season is for a reason and for a purpose. And even if he can't understand it, he knows he's got opportunities that he didn't have before to live for Christ. God's not surprised or shocked by that, that God's still able to work through Paul in the midst of that. And this isn't wishful thinking. This isn't somehow him whipping himself up into a psychological state of denial where he's walking across hot coals with Tony Robbins. That's not what's going on here. What's going on here is this is hope. This is real hope. This isn't cheap hope that we peddle around in Barnes and Noble in the self-help section. This is hope available to anyone in this room who puts their hope and faith and trust in Christ. A true help is not inside of us. It's outside of us. That's what Paul is saying. I can have this hope, that I can have this strength. Later he said, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. In the end, he says, my adversity is encouraging you guys. Just as he maintained his testimony for Christ, he encourages the Philippians to follow his example and be faithful. He says, I want you to live your life in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. Live like you're royalty. Live like you've been redeemed and brought out of darkness and delight and from death to life. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. This is not perfection, but this is living a life of purpose. This is living a life grounded in the work of the living Christ. This is not moralism, following the rules. This is not legalism. This is not religion. This is rather a life of purpose that is lived differently. Because we have a connection with the God of all the universe, we talk to people different. Because we have a connection with the God of all the universe, we sacrifice our time, we sacrifice our energy, we sacrifice our money because we know it's not us that owns it, it's he that owns it and it's simply on loan for me for a time to steward. That we're generous, that we're courageous because man, I don't really have to live in fear of what you think about me. Because I know what he thinks about me. And my pride was crucified on the cross a long time ago. So I can love you enough to teach you and tell you about who Jesus is and what he's done for me and done for you. This is living a life of purpose in a manner worthy of the gospel. He, he tells him to do this. You got to do a couple things. I want you to stand firm. And I know it's hard right now. I know, I know there's suffering right now. I'm going through a lot of stuff, but, but I want you to stand firm. And he talks about in, in verse 27, and he wants them to be in one mind and one spirit, striving side by side. What does that mean? He wants them to stay in community. He wants them to support each other. He wants them to bear each other's burdens. He, he's not saying, I just want you to do it on your own. He's saying, no, you need each other. You need the church. I just want to say this like, um, to, to the men in this room. We've been lied to as men and told that masculinity is somehow never, ever cracking and showing any sign of weakness. That is a lie from the pits of hell. I mean, so many men that wear this mask of I've got it all together, I've got to prove I've got it all together to the people around me, for my wife, for my kids, for people at work, for people at church, and inside they feel like wounded, scared little boys because they've never been vulnerable with somebody around and say, man, I'm scared, I'm broken. I need a brother to walk with me. I need a spiritual father to mentor and disciple me. I, I need people. Like Jesus, God said in the garden, the only thing that wasn't good, you know this, he said it is not good for the man to be what? Alone. Man, you don't need to be alone. It's not a sign of weakness to say you need somebody. David is 
probably the most masculine character in all the Bible. David was a warrior king, right? You didn't mess with David, but there are more instances of David crying in the Old Testament than anything else. Read the Psalms. A dude knew that he didn't have to pretend like he had it all together. He needed community. He needed to be vulnerable. And in the same way, every person in this room, we will grow in community when we're willing to be vulnerable and pretend this is about us impressing each other. Man, it's not. It's not about you impressing me. About I'm just as broke. I'm probably more broken than anybody in this room. And what this is about is us coming together and striving to know him and to be recipients of his grace each and every day, that he's the one that can fix us. He tells him, I don't want you to live in fear. You know, courage is not the absence of fear, but courage is action in the face of fear. And it's okay at times, if you don't know how it's going to turn out, to have those feelings of fear. But the Bible says that a spirit of fear is not given to us by God. You fight your fear with faith. You believe your beliefs and you doubt your doubts that every single day when the enemy comes to you and tries to get you to live in fear, you counteract that with the truth of who you are in Christ and what he's able to do. Don't live in fear. He says, I want you to accept suffering. That's a part of living a life of purpose. If you are trying to live for Jesus, you're going to suffer. And even in the midst of that, he can do something in you and he creates something in you through that suffering to make you into the person he wants you to be. And adversity is a part of the Christian life. I don't know what you've been told. If you follow Jesus, it's always going to be easy. That's a lie. It should come to no surprise to any of us that we're going to suffer. Jesus actually said it to his disciples. He said, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. And Paul says that we have two privileges. We get to believe on Christ. Look, if you've grown up in church, maybe that went right over your head. Let me say that again. You don't have to live in the bondage of thinking that somehow you are responsible for fixing you. That funk you're in right now, that mess you're in right now, that, that obstacle that you think, I, I don't know how I'm going to survive through this. Look, it is not you surviving in it. It is him that's going to fix you and pull you out of it. You get to believe on him. That's a gift. But then he says, if you want to believe on him, there's something else you've got to go through. You've got to suffer for him. You can't disconnect the two. If you try to do that, you're, you're turning a blind eye to whole portions of Scripture. And if Christ endured the wrath of God and the punishment for my sins, everything that I must go through for his namesake pales in comparison. And he went through that for me, and then what I have to go through is face a little criticism? It's an honor. It's an honor. Paul talks about this power of perspective, that, man, it's not your adversity that defines you. But rather, in the midst of that adversity, that will reveal what you're standing on. If you're living a life of purpose and meaning, or the joy you find right now, maybe that's just because you got a good job and you're married to somebody pretty. And I got both, but I know at the same time, I'm, I am I'm married to someone very beautiful. But man, like, that's, I can't make that into a practical savior. I can't, because at any given moment, and, and I, I'm going to be careful how I step on this, like those things could be gone in a heartbeat, and then what would I have? That adversity reveals your identity. What are you grounded in? What are you living for? And that your joy and my joy, it's always internal. It's never dependent on what's going on around us. 
And God is bigger than your circumstances. God knows what you're going through right now. He knows if you're feeling lonely. He knows if you're feeling hopeless. And right now, He is working in ways that you can't see in your darkest hour. Some of us are information junkies. When something in our life happens, the first thing we want is, why? Why, God? Why is this happening? Why is this going on? And in the midst of that, God says He's a father. And we're His children. Um, my little son right now is, he's sitting up, he's doing a pretty good job, but he has a massive head. <laughs> Probably not that big, maybe. It's massive. And sometimes he gets excited, and he does like this, and he, he falls too far forward, and boom, just bonks his head right on the wood floor. And in the face of that, I would be a pretty terrible father if I picked him up and said, now son, your center of gravity was a little off. <laughs> your head's... Eight times bigger than your body, so you can't do that. <laughs> In the midst of that, what my son needs is not a reason for why it's happening. What my son needs in the moment is for me to hold him. Amen. And to draw him close and say, buddy, I got you. And when we come to God and we say, hey, I need an explanation. Maybe that'll make me feel better. God's like, no, it's not. You need me to hold you. I got you. I'm bigger than you. I know what's going on. I'm working in ways you can't see. Of course you can't see it. You're locked into this little room of your space and time and that perspective, but I know what's going on because I'm the first and the last. I'm eternal. I've always been here. I see your first breath and I see your last and I know what I'm doing in the face of that. Trust me. What we see in Romans 8 is Paul would write to this church in Rome and say, we know, not we hope or not we think or not we'd like to believe, but we know. And for those who love God, all things work together for good. And for those who are called according to His purpose. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. I don't know if... I want to ask you this. Do you believe that? I mean, so many people, when you're in the throw of hopelessness, and I say, well, man, we serve a big God, it's like, okay, okay, I, I, yeah. Uh, right now, right here in this moment, in your situation, do you believe there's a God that knows you, that sees you, that loves you, and that cares enough about you Amen. that He's going to give you the hope you need? I, I, I want to ask you more than anything, are, are you, um, you believing your beliefs and doubting your doubts? Are you standing firm with what you know to be true even if the world burns around you? Are you staying in community? Guys, I love you. I, I, I love you more than, than you know, but here's what I want to ask from you. A privatized, individualized existence where it's, man, just me and God, this personal relationship. That's not it. You need brothers. You need sisters. You need somebody in your life where you can go into a room and shut the door and say, man, this is what's going on in my heart. Help. You need it. I need it. If you don't have it, man, let us know. We've got a whole program started up of people that would love to walk with you through whatever you're facing. Whether that's discipleship you need one-on-one. -on -one. We've got grief groups if you've lost a loved one. We've got divorce groups if you're going through something like that. We've got that here. The church is ready for you. The question is, are, what's keeping you? Is it pride? Is it arrogance? Don't let that stop you. 
You live in a life worthy of the gospel. You live in such a way that your life has purpose and meaning where you can truly say, man, every day when I get up, I get to make much of Christ. Or is it about something else that could just go away just like that? About making money? I mean, do we really need another recession to remind us that's not what money's life is about? I mean, gosh, that was like, what, eight years ago? And we're just, I mean, we're back to where we were? That stuff could go away in an instant. And here's the thing, it not could go, it does. And when it happens in your life, what is your foundation? Are you living your life in a manner worthy of the gospel? Are you rejecting fear? Fear comes knocking at the door of your heart. Are you listening? Are you entertaining it? Are you letting it drive you? Or each and every day, are you receiving your courage from Christ? Knowing that if he's in your life and in your heart and filling you up with his spirit to live as Christ and to die as gain. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? If you are here in this place this morning and there is a struggle or there is a suffering or there is a mountain in front of you, you're not sure why it's there, you're not even sure how you're going to get over it, but it seems like you're just surviving, not, you're not thriving, you, you right now feel lost and you feel stuck, you, you, you're just in this place of just wondering what God is doing and sometimes even wondering if he's up there if you're honest and you need him this morning. You know you need him. You need his strength. You need his power. You need him. And, and, and you want to just confess that, man, I, I need prayer. I need the church. I need people around me to pray for me and hold me accountable. If that's you in this room as an act of faith in the God that can do all things, will you just stand where you're seated right now? You just stand up knowing, man, it's not about me pretending I got it all together. I don't. It's him. It's him. If you are around any of these people, we're not here to embarrass anybody, but even on the spot, we are their brothers and their sisters. We are called by God to bear each other's burdens and support each other. Would you put a hand on their shoulder? This is the body of Christ. And we're gonna pray right now in the mighty name of Jesus that whatever they're walking through, whatever they're going through, don't let anybody stand without a hand on them. If they're standing, put a hand on them. Let's pray for them. Lord, right now, in the mighty name of Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name that you would touch our brothers and sisters. We don't know what they're going through. We don't know what we're walking through. We have no idea, Jesus. Right now, in this moment, we ask for your Holy Spirit to give them courage. We ask for your Holy Spirit to give them hope. God, we pray against the enemy. We pray against the lies of the enemy that are speaking hopelessness and that are speaking death. We speak life. We speak life abundant. Lord, we pray right now that in each and every day as they face the, the challenges and the obstacles and the struggles each and every day, that, God, they receive from you courage. Lord, whatever wounds they're carrying, in Jesus' name, I pray you'd bind up those wounds. Whatever fears they're facing, in Jesus' name, I pray, God, that you would show yourself strong in the face of those fears and they wouldn't live in those fears. And I pray in the mighty name of Jesus, right here, right now, they'd be filled with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would give them what they need to know that you're with them, that you're going to walk with them each and every day, and they're not alone. We love you and we thank you. 
We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Hey, all around this room, guys, there's communion. That's a symbol of the fact that the God of the universe loved you enough to go to a cross for you. And you're invited to take that. The only prerequisite is that you spend time examining your heart and asking God to forgive you of your sins. There's people up here that would love to pray for you, no matter what you're going through. Man, if there's something in your life that you knew you should have been standing, but you weren't, and you need prayer, come find one of these guys. They'd love to pray with you. That's what we're here for. But let's spend some time asking the Lord to search our hearts. Lord Jesus, we invite you in this place. As we take this communion together, as we pray together as your church, Lord, let us hold on to hope. Let us remember that every single day is a gift from you. And Lord, we thank you that you're going to give us everything we need, not just to survive, but to thrive. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you guys.